Hello and Salam. Welcome to the Persian History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Rakshan, and before I start today, I just want to give thanks to some of the people who inspired me to make this podcast. My favorite history teachers of all time, Sammy Mustafa and Serge Alshin. I'd also like to thank some podcasters that really inspired me to make this. I want to thank Dan Carlin of Hardcore History, David Snipes of 7poundbag.com, and last but not least, my mentor and idol, Mark Schaus, the creator of the Russian Rulers in History podcast. I've always been passionate about history and want to pursue a career in it, but due to some setbacks, I had to major in something other than my passion to get a job, and I had to take a detour. But then I saw the Russian Rulers podcast and realized that Mark Schaus has more listeners than any history teacher in the world. This motivated me to make my own. Now before we begin, I just wanted to give you a brief overview. Believe it or not, Persian history, and especially most of ancient Persian history, has been written and recorded by Greeks, Romans, and their successors, the Byzantines, their mortal enemies. You're probably asking yourself why. Why didn't the Persians record their own history? The answer is simple. They did. But it was all burnt or destroyed during the Muslim invasions of Persia and the Mongol invasions of Persia. Most historical and religious documents were destroyed because they were deemed pagan in nature. Luckily, there were legendary men, such as Herodotus and Xenophon, historians who I truly love and admire with all my heart, but also at the same time hate with all my heart. Let me explain. The reason I admire them is because they took the time and dedicated their lives to recording Persian history. But what we must also take into consideration is that Herodotus and Xenophon were Greek, so their opinions were obviously biased. You'll realize this later on in the podcast when they come up with the most absurd and astronomical numbers for battles, sometimes in the millions. With that being said, I'd like to tell my listeners to take every war story and battle account with a grain of salt, and in some cases I advise you to take it with a whole shaker of salt. Although most old ancient history, ancient Persian history, was written by the Greeks, there's still plenty of Persian historians from near ancient and medieval Persia but not as many as I would like. I hope you all enjoy the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, please feel free to email me at persianhistorypodcast at gmail.com or visit the Persian History Podcast Facebook page and website, persianhistorypodcast.com. I wanted to start this podcast right from the roots, not when a Persian society was first recognized by the world. I'd like to start right when the Persian Empire began. I want you to all stop what you're doing and envision a battlefield. On one end, imagine a ruthless, bloodthirsty, senile king with an army of 250,000 men. Soldiers, kings, mercenaries from all over the land with one goal, to destroy the king and his people on the opposite end of the battlefield. On the other side of the battlefield, there stands another king, one who fights for freedom, justice, and liberty. A man who would revolutionize not only the history of his country, but of the world. The first recorded document of human rights was recorded by him, and is located at the United Nations headquarters today. It was called the Cyrus Cylinder. He was a hero, the king of the Persians, the founder of the Achaemenid Empire, Cyrus. A man whose deeds would be so incredible that the world would call him Cyrus the Great, Shah Han Shah, King of Kings. I'll get back to Cyrus in a minute, because first, 
we need to cover some geography and demographics, which are going to be crucial for understanding Persian history and ancient history as a whole. If we travel 3,000 years into the past and visit the Middle East, we'd find a much different place than what you see today. Most of the Middle East today speaks Arabic. 3,000 years ago, the Arabic peoples made up a very tiny portion of the population and were mere nomadic tribal peoples. Directly north of the Arabian Peninsula, you'll find the Fertile Crescent, a place where the first civilizations in history of the world started, Mesopotamia, the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. If any of you are wondering what Mesopotamia actually means word for word, I'll tell you. Meso in ancient Greek means middle, and potamos means rivers, the land between the two rivers, similar to the word hippopotamus, hippo which means horse, and potamus which means river, aka the name of that gigantic animal you should never go near. The western part of the Fertile Crescent consists of the Nile River, the lifeblood of Egypt. And as we travel eastward, we see the terrain begins to drastically change. No more low valleys, no more peaceful oases, warm weather, and flatlands. We begin to see the Iranian Plateau border, the massive, treacherous, resilient Zagros Mountains. The name was given to them by Alexander the Great. He named them the Zagros Mountains, which in Greek means stormy mountains, since so many of his men perished traveling through them. Surrounding the Zagros Mountains, we begin to find beautiful lush marshlands, rivers, lakes, and streams, all of which are a byproduct of the snow melting from the mountains. The beautiful city of Esfahan still exists because of the Zoyan Derud, literally meaning river which gives life another byproduct of the melted snow from the Zagros Mountains. I've personally been to many of these areas and can tell you that it's some of the most beautiful landscapes you'll ever see in your life. To the north you'll see the mighty Alborz Mountains, a region where my family originates from, with Mount Damavand at 18,000 plus feet and other mountains in the chain trapping moisture from the Caspian Sea. The northern part of Iran is subtropical the areas where most of the country's agriculture is produced and was produced back then. As we travel eastward, the Alborz mountain chain ends and we are faced with endless steppe land, flat desolate grasslands unfit for any type of agriculture that goes eastward to the Ural mountains in modern-day Mongolia. South of the steppes, the east and southeast section of Iran, we find the Dashtelut and Dashtekavir, two large desolate and blistering hot deserts. The hottest recorded temperature on Earth was actually recorded here, in Dashtelut, at 155 degrees Fahrenheit. Although these deserts are unfit for any type of life, they're very useful due to the fact that there are massive salt reserves in them. In short, that's a geography of the Iranian plateau. I just had to clarify that because I cannot tell you how many times people have come up to me and asked, Oh, isn't Iran all desert? I usually just don't answer them. But for the sake of this podcast and my listeners, I thought it'd be very important to elaborate on this, since all of you are going to need to be experts in Iranian geography to fully understand the upcoming podcasts. Now that we have skimmed over the geography, let's begin talking about the people. If we travel 3,000 years ago into the past, you'll see the Middle East being dominated by a few different kingdoms, most which have perished, but few which still live on today. The Egyptians, Medeans, Assyrians, 
Babylonians, Lydians, Bactrians, and Scythians. And last but not least, the mighty Persians. Or should I say, not so mighty Persians. The year is 600 BC, and much of the Iranian plateau is controlled by a group called the Medeans, or Medes, M-E-D-E-S. The Medes are an Iranian people, meaning that first of all, they originate from the Iranian plateau. Second of all, their language is Indo-European and not Semitic, like most of the languages in the known world at the time. Median and Persian are very similar languages and can be traced back to the same root language, which is Avestan. Both people also had the same religion, Zoroastrianism, or a similar form of it, the first monotheistic religion in history. Now you may be wondering why I said the not-so-glorious Persians before. The reason behind this is that during this time in history, Persians were only a vassal state in the Median Empire. The way the Median Empire worked at the time was that there was one king. His name was King Astyages, who ruled over his inferior vassals or subordinate kings. The people who lived under the subordinate kings had less rights, less freedom, and for the most part, little to do with Median culture, customs, and daily life. The few things that were expected of them were draft age men to be enlisted in the Median army, an army which had little or no opportunity for non-Medeans. And most importantly, that the subordinate kingdoms paid an annual tax to King Astyages. To the west existed the mighty Assyrian Empire, which would later become the Babylonian Empire, after the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, was crushed by Astyages' grandfather, Cyaxares. If any of you are looking for a really good podcast on the end of the Assyrian Empire, check out Dan Carlin's hardcore history, Judgment at Nineveh. Awesome podcast. The unfortunate vassal states such as Persia were stuck in the middle of superpowers, sometimes being forced to pay tribute to both. The overall atmosphere in that of the region was an atmosphere of oppression, in a land where only few could truly improve themselves and their society. What was needed was a hero, one man to unite them all, and he was on his way. His name was Cyrus, a man who would not only change the history of the Persians, he would radically change the history of the entire world. He would change the history of the world to such an extent that he was considered holy, to the point where he was considered anointed of the Lord in the Jewish holy book of Ezra. Many people even thought he was a prophet in the amount of good deeds he did and liberation he did. It was approximately 575 BC when he was born. He was born during the time where Astyages was king of the Median Empire and the Median Empire was at its zenith. Astyages intended to keep things this way by all means. Astyages was a firm believer in dream reading. Dream readers had predicted his future correctly in the past and guided him through tough decisions successfully many times. This was why he always made sure to heed their words. Astyages had a dream that a child would be born of his daughter Mondine. I believe this is the Greek translation of the Persian name Mondana. He had a dream that his child would be born from this child Mondana who would take his kingdom from him. The dream readers told Astyage to keep a watchful eye over his daughter, and he did. He made sure to marry her off to a Persian of noble blood named Cambyses. Although he was of noble blood, he was of a quiet and peaceable temper, according to Herodotus. Astyages was sure that everything was okay by now. Firstly, the offspring of Cambyses and Mondana would not be able to dethrone him 
because the child was not 100% Medean. No one would follow a child of mixed blood. Secondly, he made sure to marry her off to a wimp like Cumbysis to make sure their son would not have kingly qualities. Little did he know that his child would obviously have kingly qualities, as he was the grandson of a king, for God's sake. After some further research, I actually realized that he was actually king's blood on all three sides. From his grandfather, King Astyages, and King Astyages had married the daughter of the Lydian king, or Lydian king, meaning that his great-grandfather, grandfather, and father were all of noble and kingly blood. Everything was fine until Asiages had a second dream, a dream that Mandana gave birth to a son, a son who would then overthrow him and take his kingdom from him. Shortly after this dream, Mandana became pregnant. Asiages had both Cambyses and Mandana relocated to his palace, where he awaited the birth of their child. Asiages gave strict orders to the palace personnel that if she gave birth to a male, they are to take the boy to his right-hand man, Harpagus. Harpagus was the king's right-hand man and one of his most worthy subjects. He was also one of his biggest generals. Harpagus would be given the strict orders to take Cyrus to a desolate area and slaughter him. The king said, Harpagus, see thou that in the matter which I shall now put in thy charge, thou in no wise neglect my commandment, nor prefer others to me, and so in the end, Bring great sorrow on thyself. So the matter is this. Thou shalt take this child that mundane, my daughter, hath lately born, and carry it to thy home, and there slay And afterwards thou shalt bury it in such fashion as thou wilt. Harpagus then said to Astyages, O king, thou hast never perceived any transgression in thy servant in thy time past and he will take good heed in that he sin not against thee in time to come. And as for this matter of which thou speakest, if thou wilt have it so, it must be done. When Harpagus said this, they gave him the child, the child being dressed as if for burial. He took it and went to his home crying. When he got home, he told his wife what horrors were expected of him. When his wife said, What then art thou minded to do in this matter? And he said, Of a surety I shall not do as king hath commanded me. Harpagus was in the middle of a huge dilemma right now. He was going to ensure his own loyalty in life by killing this child. Was he going to do that, or was he going to do the right thing and find a way for the child to stay alive? This part really gets me emotional because I remember the quote from the movie Kingdom of Heaven, where the king of Jerusalem tells Orlando Bloom, no matter what crimes he takes part in, no matter what king or emperor tells him to do, he should always do the right thing regardless of the consequences. Because in the end, he will be judged by the ultimate judge, God, or whatever higher power he was talking about. Harpagus was a general. He'd probably killed thousands of men by this time. But on this day, his conscience got the best of him. Harpagus traveled deep into the land of the Zagros Mountains, searching for an answer. And luckily for him, he would finally run into a shepherd named Mithridates. Mithridates' wife had just given birth that day, but unfortunately, she had given birth to a stillborn child. Mithridates would make an offer to Harpagus after hearing his pleas that would change history for good. 
The man said, quote, If then I cannot prevail with thee, that thou shouldest not put forth this child. Yet listen to me, if the men must needs to see a child put forth, do this thing that I shall tell thee. I was delivered of a child this day, and the child was dead when it was born. Take for this dead child and put forth, and let us rear this child of the daughter of Astyages, as if it were our own, so thou wilt not be found to transgress the commands of thy masters, and we shall also have done well for ourselves. For indeed the dead child shall have a royal burial, and the living child shall not be slain. End quote. Mithridates here told Harpagus that he'd be honored to raise Cyrus as his own child and give Harpagus the stillborn child to show as evidence. Harpagus happily accepted, but little did he know that this would come right back to haunt him in the future. The upbringing of Cyrus has been recorded by two separate historians. One of them is Herodotus and the other one is Xenophon. Xenophon was a mercenary who fought for the Persians after Cyrus the Great's death. He had the opportunity to write down a lot of Persian history and get a lot of first-hand information on Cyrus. Herodotus gives a detailed story of Cyrus's birth, then fast-forwards a bit. Xenophon, on the other hand, gives very detailed accounts on the upbringing of Cyrus, but not so much on his birth. So what I'm going to do here is combine the two stories into one for you guys. What you've heard up to this point is all from Herodotus. What you're going to hear now is from Xenophon, and I'll cue you in once we get back to Herodotus. Alright. Cyrus was then raised by Mithridates in the tough, unforgiving lands, which are the outskirts of the city of Ecbatana in the Zagros Mountains. There was absolutely nothing kingly about the environment he was in. Growing up a shepherd's son, he probably learned the value of hard work and toughness. He probably learned a great deal about humility. This would play a crucial role in his later life when he's able to communicate with his troops eye to eye to receive a complete and undying loyalty from them. When Cyrus reached the age of 10, something happened that resulted in his discovery. Herodotus says, quote, He was to play with the other boys that were his equals in age. In the village were the dwellings of the herdsmen and his fellows. And the boys in their sport chose him to be their king. And he, being thus chosen, gave to each his proper work, setting one to build houses and others to be his bodyguards, and one to be eye of the king, to each his own work. Now one of the boys that played with him, the son of Artemberes, a man renowned among the Medes, would not do what Cyrus had commanded of him. Wherefore Cyrus made the other boys lay hold of him and corrected him for his fault with many grievous stripes. End quote. By correcting, Herodotus means they took the boy of noble blood who didn't listen to Cyrus and whipped him. The story is pretty humorous, but it also goes to show how powerful Cyrus's leadership skills were, even at such a young age. The boy whose butt he whooped complained to his father. During this time in history, a commoner laying his hand on someone of noble blood was a huge crime, probably punishable by death. After Artaberes made his complaint, the disturbance finally reached the ears of King Astyages. After the king saw the lashes and bruises on the body of Artemberis' son, he called for the herdsman and his son, who was Cyrus. And when they finally both came before him, Astyages looked toward Cyrus and asked, quote, How did thou, being the son of a herdsman, dare to do such shameful things to the son of a man who is first of all the men that stand before me? 
To this Cyrus made answer, My lord, all I did, I did with good cause, for the boys of the village, this also being one of them, in their play, chose me to be their king, for I seemed to them to be the fittest of this honor. All the others indeed did the things I commanded of them, but this boy was disobedient and paid no heed to me, for which he received punishment as was due. And if thou deemest it fit that I should suffer for doing so, lo, here I am. End quote. After being put in front of a king of all the land and questioned, Cyrus had the guts to give the king such an answer. The king, after hearing such a young child talk with such bravery, began to both see a physical and a personality resemblance to himself. What the king also noticed is that this child was around 10 years old, the same time he had his grandson killed. He came from a town close to Harpagus' home as well. So now that King Astyages was a little skeptical, he told everyone to leave the room because he wanted to have a word with the herdsman, Cyrus' adopted father. The king asked him, quote, Tell me whence did thou receive this child, and who is he that gave him to thee? The herdsman then replied, Surely he is my son, and she that bare him is my wife, and is alive in my house. King Astyages then answered, Thou answereth not well for thyself. Thou wilt bring thyself into great peril. He then had his guard attempt to take him away and torture him. The shepherd spilled the beans right away and told the king the whole true story. The king, being happy that his grandson had turned out to be such a fine young boy, pardoned the shepherd and his wife. Unfortunately, Harpagus would not have the same liberty. Harpagus would pay the worst price of all. The king then called in Harpagus. As soon as he thought, saw the shepherd standing beside the king, he knew what was going on and told the king the whole story as well. King Astyages, after hearing both identical stories completely, hid his own anger and said, quote, The boy yet lives, and is well, for indeed I have been much troubled remembering what I had done to the child. Nor did I count it a light matter that my daughter was displeased with me. Now therefore that the matter hath turned out so well, first send thine own son that he may be a companion to this boy, and next come and dine with me today, for I would have a feast of thanksgiving for this boy that was dead and is alive again. End quote. Little did Harpagus know what a unique and morbid Thanksgiving this would be. Everyone was excited about this grand feast tonight. The long-lost grandson of the king was finally back. This would also be the second time in their entire lives that the Persian king Cambyses and his wife Mondana would meet their son. As people entered the king's castle for the feast, one by one his guard surveyed the guests, looking for the one target that they had been assigned to. Herodotus states, quote, But the king so soon as his son of Harpagus was to come into the house, took him and slew him, and cut him limb from limb, and of the flesh he roasted some, and some he boiled, and so having dressed it with much care, made it ready against the dinner. And when the hour of dinner was to come, Harpagus and the other guests sat down to meat. And before Harpagus was set a dish of his flesh of his own son, wherein every part save only the head and the tips of the hands and the feet, for these lay apart by themselves with a covering over them. And when Harpagus had eaten enough, the king asked him, Was this dish to thy mind? 
And when the man answered, it was indeed to his mind, the king's guard brought the head and hands and feet covered with their cover. There they stood before Harpagus and made him uncover and take what he would. When Harpagus so did, he saw what remained of his son. After seeing this, he was not amazed and still commanded himself. Then the king inquired of him, Knowest thou what beast this is, of whom thou hast eaten? And Harpagus made answer, I know it, and all that the king does as well. He then took what was left of his son, carried it with him home, and buried it. In this case, revenge was a dish best served warm. But in all seriousness, this just goes to show the level of brutality King Astyages was willing to commit in order to convey his firm grip on his subjects. Cyrus being at the feast and witnessing this learned from it, but not to emulate the king, because later in his life he would witness what a terrible mistake the king made by doing harm to Harpagus. Harpagus would have his glorious revenge, but in years to come. Now for some reason, with the Greek historian Herodotus, he fast forwards right away into Cyrus's adulthood. But Xenophon goes into great detail about Cyrus's childhood and training. So the next few ex excerpts will be about Xenophon's writing. Now before I start, I just want to give you a heads up that Herodotus was strictly a historian and a poet. Therefore, as you saw in the previous writings, he writes about history in a very epic and romantic way. Because he would often tell stories like this in front of whole crowds. Xenophon, on the other hand, was a mercenary fighting for the Persians and also a historian. So naturally, his style of writing is going to be much different than that of Herodotus. I personally like Xenophon's style of writing much more because he goes much further into detail and speaks very practically. For those of you who are interested in further reading, please check out Xenophon's Cyropedia which is a book dedicated to the life and upbringing of Cyrus the Great. I also advise you to buy the newest translation of Herodotus's The Histories. Alright, now that you've been informed, here we go. According to Xenophon, all Persian men had the opportunity to attend public schools. Those who wished to rise above the ranks to hold some type of office were expected to. Xenophon states, quote, in their cities they have an open place or square dedicated to freedom. Freedom Square, they call it, where stand the palace and other public buildings. This square, where the public buildings stand, is divided into four quarters, which are assigned to as follows. One for the boys, another for the youths, a third for grown men, and last but not least, those who are above the age of military service. The law requires all the citizens to present themselves at certain times and seasons in their appointed places. Over each of these divisions are placed twelve governors, twelve being the number of Persian tribes existing. He explains that from the period of boy to young man, aged ten to seventeen, the men are trained on horseback riding, javelin throwing, arrow shooting, hand-to-hand -hand combat, and hunting. He, he then explains the discipline conditions they were brought up in. He goes into detail how the children are trained in temperance and self-restraint. This part really interested me because every time I had a conversation with a religious person, they always tell me how before the world's major religions made their way on the earth, people didn't know how to live and needed to be saved. The heathens or pagans of the time just indulged in everything and needed religion to put them into place. But as I read more and more classical works, I realize how strong 
if not stronger, these values of discipline, temperance, and self-restraint, as well as morality and ethics meant to people back then. And from the way Xenophon writes, it couldn't be more obvious how much he praises this lifestyle. Being that he was an elite soldier and general, I'm not surprised. Xenophon goes into further detail saying, quote, Persians endeavor to improve their citizens. The boys go to school and give their time to learning justice and righteousness. They will tell you they have come for that purpose. And the phrase is as natural with them as it is for us to speak of lads learning their letters. The masters spend the chief part of the day in deciding cases for their pupils. For this boy world, as in the grown-up world, without occasions of indictment, are never far to seek. There will be charges, we know, of picking and stealing, of violence, of fraud, of calamity, and so forth. End quote. It seems to me that the children are learning law and justice. If these children attending public school are expected to run the kingdom in the future, they need to be trained on how to decipher right from wrong and how to enforce these laws. Once they have reached the age of 16 or 17, they are considered young men. With this new title, their training dramatically changes. Once boys became young men, their training took off to new great lengths. Their combat training became more rigorous, and the hunts they went on more grand. Xenophon writes about Cyrus's first major hunting expedition, where not only does Cyrus succeed in slaying a stag and a wild boar, he comes into contact with the prince of Assyria, which results in a bloody skirmish. In this skirmish, we begin to see Cyrus's first signs of leadership, bravery, and high intelligence. Cyrus had become such a formidable hunter and leader that after some time, King Asiagis himself decided to lead a grand hunting party into the frontiers of Medea. The frontiers of Medea would be the western foothills of the Zagros Mountains today, a lush and green fertile land which is still incredible hunting ground today. What would happen that day would change Cyrus forever. The prince of Assyria, who had also assembled a hunting party of his own, would illegally enter the Median lands to hunt game. Xenophon writes, quote, But when he was about fifteen years of age, it chanced that the prince of Assyria, who was about to marry a wife, planned a hunting party of his own in honor of the bridal, and having heard that on the frontiers of Assyria and Medea there was much game to be got, untouched and unmolested because of the war. The prince chose these marches for his hunting ground. But for the safety's sake, he took with him a large escort of cavalry and targeteers, who were to drive out the beasts from their lairs into the cultivated levels below, where it was easy to ride. End quote. A few days into the hunt, both parties came within sight of each other. The Assyrians had illegally infiltrated a sovereign land. Although this was not an invasion, Entering another country without permission, with a large force of armed men, was an act of war. Cyrus, as well as every other man in the hunting party, changed out of their hunting clothes and into their armor. This was the first time in his entire life that Cyrus puts on every piece of his body armor. Cyrus's hunting party was divided into two bodies, one led by the king's son, Cyaxares, and the other led by the king. The enemy hunting party was also divided into two bodies. One was led by the prince of Assyria and the other one by his guards. After observing the enemy, Cyrus began to devise a tactical plan on how to attack them. Cyrus asked, quote, 
Can those men yonder be our enemies, grandfather? Those who are standing so quietly beside their horses? Enemies they are, said the king. And are those enemies too, the boy asked? Those who are riding over there? Yes, to be sure, said King Astyages. Cyrus then proposed. Well, grandfather, a sorry set they look, and sorry jades they ride to ravage our lands. It will be well for some of us to charge them. Not yet, my boy, asked his grandfather. Look at the mass of the horsemen there. If we were to charge the others now, the friends of theirs would charge us, for our full strength is not yet on the field. Yes, but, Cyrus suggested, if you stay here yourself, ready to receive our supporters, those fellows will be afraid to stir either, and the cattle lifters will drop their booty quick enough as soon as they find they are attacked. What Cyrus is doing here is attacking the prince's party with his own stronger and larger force, while keeping his grandfather's weaker and smaller force in the distance as a reserve to trick the enemy into thinking that there was a much larger force in the distance ready to fight the Assyrians, if the Assyrians decide to stand their ground. Cyrus was doing just as Sun Tzu taught in the art of war, appear weak when you are strong, and strong when you are weak. He was also following Sun Tzu's golden rule, that all battles are based on deception. After the two enemy parties glared at each other from a distance, King Astyaja decided enough is enough, and gave Cyrus the signal to charge. Cyrus and his uncle Cyaxares rallied their men and galloped full charge at the Assyrians. The Syrians, seeing that only half of their enemy force was pursuing them, decided to stand their ground. A bloody skirmish was about to commence. Once they clashed with the combined Persian and Median shock cavalry, they soon came to the realization that they were outmatched. Xenophon said they were mowed down by the superior Persian and Median foes. Assyrians were the most talented and feared warriors of the known world two generations ago, during the time of Cyaxares I, King Astyages' grandfather. But it was clear that their fighting ability and tactics had become outdated. Once they realized they couldn't face the Persian cavalry face to face, they resorted to hit and run tactics. Xenophon states, quote, For Hithero, Whenever the armies met, they would only charge up to a certain distance and there take flying shots, and so that to keep up the skirmish until evening fell, with Cyrus and his comrades at their heels in full pursuit, and Astyages along with his cavalry were already within bowshot. It was more than they could face, and they turned and fled. After them swept the Medes in full pursuit, and those they caught they mowed down, horse and man, and those that fell, they slew. Cyrus became famous in all of Medea and all of Persia after the skirmish, to the point where Xenophon states he was on the lip of every man. Cyrus was 15 years old, and he had partaken in his first battle. He didn't sit back behind his troops and watch them fight for him. He fought in the front lines and led the charge. The psychological influence this had on him and his confidence must have been immense. For the first time in his life, he was able to see the enemy face to face and strike them down in battle. This would definitely play a part in his psyche in his later years when he faced these same enemies to the west in full-scale war. 
There really is nothing more incredible in military history for me than a general that fights alongside his troops. It really is beautiful. I can't even begin to express the respect I have for the Cyruses, the Hannibals, the Vercingetorixes, Dmitri Donskoys, and Nader Shahs of history. Seeing what a great and virtuous boy Cyrus had become, Astyages disregarded the absurd prophecies about his grandson overthrowing his empire. He loved his grandson, and he knew that love was mutual. Seeing that Cyrus was becoming a man, he knew it was time to send his grandson back to his homeland, where he could develop and improve himself among his brethren, the Persians. He sent him back to Persia with many gifts and many horses. In Persia, Cyrus had adjusted a harsher and less majestic Persian lifestyle quickly, which would surely win the respect of his countrymen. He grew up to be a brilliant young man, and was slowly but surely proving to everyone that he was a natural-born leader. Over time in the Median Empire, changes were taking place, many noticeable changes that were of much concern. I'll never forget Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast on old-school toughness, when he elaborated on the rise and fall of empires. He quoted Voltaire, saying, History is filled with the sound of silken slippers going down the stairs, and wooden shoes coming up. I want you all to think about this quote for one minute. What do you think he means by this? What type of people wear silk slippers? And what type of people wear wooden shoes? We often see in the life cycle of empires that during the beginning they're hungry, ambitious, and determined to attain what they don't have. We often see in the life cycle of empires that during the beginning they're hungry, ambitious, and determined to attain what they don't have. But as they start to acquire their wishes, their old wants become needs. Luxury becomes necessity. They take the wooden shoes off and replace them with silk slippers. It is often in history during those times when the wearers of silk slippers are overthrown. Cyrus's trip back to Persia would be the first time he'd be able to spend a reasonable amount of time with his mother and father. He'd have to adapt to a new lifestyle he wasn't used to. After living so many years with his grandfather, he probably soon saw how different the Persian lifestyle was. What little opportunity his brethren had, how Persians didn't have the same rights as Medeans, and overall how his people as a whole were treated as second-class citizens. Cyrus surely loved his grandfather, but throughout his years living in Persia proper, he probably began to realize how much of a tyrant his grandfather really was. We begin to see some changes in the Persian society once Cyrus reintroduced back into it. For the first time, we hear about a legendary Persian immortal corpse. During this time in Persia, with a laid-back and lenient father like Cambyses, Cyrus was probably able to exercise a lot of power over his people to strengthen them and better Persian society as a whole. Cyrus began organizing a formidable military. Due to many constraints during this period, such as conscription, heavy taxes, and regulations, the vassal states of the Median Empire were not allowed to, or were possibly constrained to not having the ability to possess a large national army. Now, if you break down the components of ancient armies, we can come to a very simple term on how to describe them quantity and quality. 
Training, wages, weapons, armor, and other necessary components all cost a lot of time and money. When you have a limited amount of money, you have two choices. You can either have a massive army with a few elites and a whole lot of conscripts, or you can use that money to develop highly trained, well-equipped soldiers. Now, the Persians didn't have option number one, because as I said before, there were limits on the amount of troops they were legally allowed to have. So what the Persians did was create the finest soldiers around the time. The Immortals. Immortals were the most elite force in the Persian army. Soldiers competing for a spot in a 10,000 strong force needed to be experts in javelin throwing, hand-to-hand -hand combat, spear fighting, mounted archery, sword fighting, and last but not least, kushti, which means wrestling in Farsi. And if you literally translate the word kushti, it means to kill. I'll further go into detail with the Immortals as I am having their own episode in the podcast due to their importance in the Persian history. But for now, let's get back to Cyrus's revolutionizing of Persia. After some time in Persia, Cyrus had become so famous that his name was heard back in Ekbatana. Cyrus was called back to the king's court, but before he left, he would teach his people a very valuable lesson. Cyrus assembled his men and said, Hearken now, ye Persians, come on the morrow, each man with a reaping hook. The next day his men arrived with hooks and blade to receive Cyrus's orders. He then said, Clear ye me this place of these thorns by sunset. The place was of eighteen or twenty furlongs each way. For those of you who don't know, I researched it. One furlong is one-eighth of a mile. After the Persians cleared the field, Cyrus said to them, Come again to me tomorrow, but come ready for a feast. When his people arrived the next day, he prepared a great feast for the whole army of the Persians, with flesh of goats and sheep and oxen, and a good store of wine. After the feast was finally over on the third day, he asked his people, Tell me, on which day did ye fare the better, yesterday or today? And they answered, we cannot compare the two, for yesterday we had toil and trouble, but today all good things. Then Cyrus, after hearing what he wanted to hear, got up on a platform and said, Men of Persia, the matter stands thus. If ye will hearken to me, ye shall have all the good things, and others also without number, and that without any need of toiling as slaves. But if ye will not hearken, ye shall have labors without end, such as ye had yesterday. Hearken therefore to me, and be free, for I am sure that I was born by the will of the gods to bring these things to pass. And for you, I hold that you are in no wise worse than the Medes, whether as regards valor in battle or as regards to other things. I bid you, therefore, rebel this day against King Astyages. For all of you listening right now, I just want you to think what he's trying to convey here. What Cyrus is trying to convey here is that in life you can never achieve greatness, success, and happiness without hardships and sacrifice first. He told his people if they didn't want to go through sacrifice and hardships, they'd remain slaves forever, slaves to the Medeans. My father told me this is a bedtime story when I was a kid, and it had a profound effect on me. It's crazy how a little discipline can get you so far, and how 
Laziness, although it feels good in the beginning, could destroy you. His people were ready for a new beginning. All they had to wait for now was his command. Cyrus was called back to the king's court. What he would see in Medea would make him begin to internally question his grandfather. The Median Empire had been in power for a long time. King Astyages was exercising his powers too far and oppressing his vassal states too much. The king and Medeans as a whole were becoming greedy, spoiled, and weaker. Cyrus slowly watched the same people who taught him his strict values slowly go back on their own words. The Median Empire was becoming too oppressive and at the same time exposing its own weaknesses. King Astyage and the Median Empire needed to be overthrown, and this wasn't a minority opinion. After some time at the king's court, Cyrus asked his grandfather to go back to Persia for five months. After a lot of thinking, the king not seeing Cyrus as a threat allowed him to go home. On his ride home, he'd receive a message stuffed in the dead body of a hare that would change him for the rest of his life. Harpagus, who himself was a Mede, had seen with his very own eyes his entire life the oppression and hardships that King Asiyaj had laid on the people. It was time for him to be overthrown, but who was best fit for the job? Median rules had all gotten spoiled. Years and years of easy living, pampering, and an overall luxurious lifestyle had made most Median rulers unfit to rule. There was only one man fit for this job. Only one man could rule this multi-ethnic land full of Medes and Persians. This man was Cyrus. The relationship between Cyrus and Harpagus was a very, very powerful one. Harpagus had fallen in love with Cyrus when he was just a baby. So much that he could not follow the orders of his own king. Because of what happened in the past, and because of what Cyrus later learned, these two men became like father and son. And it's symbolic as well, because the same day Cyrus, a man Harpagus could not kill since he loved so much, came back into the picture, Harpagus's son was killed. Therefore, in a way, Cyrus replaced Harpagus's son. Both Persian and Mede, he had royal blood flowing through his veins, which made him qualified to rule. But this man of royal blood was not soft. He was raised by a shepherd in the harsh, unforgiving lands of the Zagros Mountains. No one else was better fit to rule than Cyrus. He was both Persian and Mede. He was of nobility, but also a commoner. When Harpagus realized this, he knew all the roads were guarded, so he sent a messenger dressed as a hunter to give Cyrus a letter stuffed in a dead hair, which said, Son of Cambyses, seeing that the gods have care for thee, for else thou hadst not come to such prosperity. Bethink thee how thou mayest have vengeance on King Astyages, who would have slain thee, for indeed, as regards to him, thou hadst died a long time ago, but yet do the favor of the gods and my help thou still liveth. For I judge that thou hast now for a long time known the truth about thyself, and what I have suffered at the hands of Astyages, because I knew I slew thee not, but rather gave thee to the herdsmen. Now therefore, if thou wilt hearken to me, thou shalt be master of all the country which King Astyages now hath. Persuade the Persians that they revolt, and make war against the Medes. All things therefore are ready. Only whatever thou doesest, thou shouldest do quickly. Cyrus, upon receiving this letter, wasted no time. He immediately sent messengers on fast-riding horses 
and asked his father to assemble an army and start a revolt. They didn't have much, but with their small army and enough support from the common people, a formidable revolt could be started. The history of the entire world was about to change, and it was all in Cyrus's hands. Shortly after Cyrus had left King Astyages' court, rumors began of a revolt. Astyages ignored all the signs until one night one of the Magi, which is a Median Persian priest class, sang these words to the king. A fierce wild beast, more fierce than any boar, was let go and sent into a sunny country and he should reign over all these provinces and should, with a handful of men, maintain a war against large armies. King Asiages immediately took this as a sign and sent 300 horsemen after Cyrus to bring him back home. The 300 horsemen departed and met with Cyrus's party on the road back to Persia. When they finally encountered him, they told him that they were summoned to bring him back to Medea. Cyrus then replied, Why should I not return as my lord summons me? Today we will feast, tomorrow morning we will set out. The 300 horsemen, not seeing him as a threat, agreed to sit down for a feast for the night. During the merryful night of feasting and drinking, Cyrus sent a messenger off to his father Cambyses. The message told his father to assemble 1,000 cavalry and 5,000 foot soldiers, then to station them at the city of Hybra immediately. Once the 300 horsemen ate and drank themselves into an intoxication, Cyrus rode off into the night. The next morning when they saw he wasn't there, they quickly pursued him to the city of Hybra, which was on the road to Persia. When they finally got to the city, what waited for them there was an army of Persians, led by their new king, Cyrus. The 300 armed horsemen knew if they did not come back with Cyrus, they'd be killed. So they all charged full speed into the Persian ranks with the intention of killing or capturing Cyrus. 250 of the elite horsemen were slain, and 50 escaped back to Medea to inform King Astyages that this was no regional revolt that they were used to crushing. Cyrus had orchestrated a massive revolt that threatened the very existence of their empire. When Astyages heard of the news, he didn't take it lightly. By this time, King Astyages was no longer the glorious king he used to be. He'd become a senile, ruthless tyrant and lost most of his grip on reality. I say this because what he does next proves to be insane. According to Herodotus, he immediately organized an invading force of 1,250,000 men to not only crush Cyrus, but to invade Persia. Modern sources indicate that this army was probably around 250,000 to 300,000 in the field. But that was still an unbelievable army for the ancient world. King Asiages organized his army. He called upon mercenaries from all over the land. His beloved grandson had betrayed him. The prophecies were true. Asiages was not planning a mere invasion of Persia. He planned on wiping the Persians off the face of the earth. His army of 300,000 men made camp outside the unknown city on the Persian border. King Cyrus, his father Cambyses, and Oberus met him with a force of 50,000 men outside the city for battle. The reason we call this battle the battle for the Persian border has to do with the fact that we do not know the exact name of the city that was being defended. What we do know is that it was an important city on the Persian and Median frontier 
which was worth defending. The Persian battle formation consisted of Cyrus in the middle, guarded by his elite immortals and cavalry, his father Cambyses on the right wing, and Obeyrus on the left wing. Astyages sat in the rear with 50,000 of his strong elite guard, and watched his 250,000 strong army charge the Persians. Astyages' gargantuan army met with the Persian front line, and the battle commenced. Persians versus Medeans, cousins fighting cousins. The battle was horrific and lasted all day. The Persians, although weaker in numbers, were able to hold their ground and inflict heavy casualties on the Medeans. The Persians impressed King Astyages so much that he was quoted saying, quote, Oh look how bravely these terebinth eaters fight. End quote. This was probably the point in the battle where King Astyages realized that fighting the Persians head-on would cause too many casualties and decided to use some strategy. From what I read, it seems like the city that they were fighting for was surrounded by mountain passes and hills. According to Nicholas of Damascus, Astyages decided to take a portion of his best men and attack the weakest of the three generals, Cambyses, Cyrus's father, from the rear. Nicholas quotes, quote, While Cyrus and Oberus were fighting in the field, Astyages caused 100,000 men to go round and attack the Persian army in the rear. The attack succeeded. Cambyses fell, covered with wounds, into the hands of the Medes. Astyages said to him, An excellent satrap you are. Is it thus that you thank me, you and your son, for what I have done for you? Cambyses almost at the last gasp replied, I know not, O king, what deity has roused this frenzy in my son. Put me not to the torture. I shall soon die. Astyages had compassion on him and said, I will not put you to the torture. I know that if your son had followed your advice, he would not have done such things. Cambyses died, and Astyages gave him an honorable burial. Astyages' brilliant tactic resulted in a Median victory that day. Cyrus left a fighting force in the city to hold off Astyages, then gathered up all the men he could and headed south to the heart of Persia, the city of Pasadar Gai. Persians were on the losing side of the battle. Cyrus had to think quickly and come up with a solution quick before the Median's strong advance became irreversible. Cyrus did something that his contemporary Sun Tzu, the writer of the Art of War, would praise him for. He would take the Persian army to a location where retreat was no longer an option. Why, you ask? Why would a general put his own troops in such danger with no option of retreat? Let me quote Sun Tzu before I tell you. Sun Tzu states, quote, Throw your soldiers into positions whence there is no escape, and they will prefer death to flight. If they still face death, there is nothing they may not achieve. Officers and men alike will put forth their uttermost strength. Soldiers, when in desperate straits, lose the sense of fear. If there is no place of refuge, they will stand firm. They will fight hard. I remember also when I was reading The Art of War that Sun Tzu said when he attacks his own enemies he always gives them an option of retreat. This way he knows they're not going to fight their hardest and when their men retreat he could just fight them in a second battle in their diminished force and beat them. Think about what he means here. For those of you who have never been in a life-threatening position or confrontation, let me help you out with an everyday analogy. I, for one, am terrified of roller coasters, but my peers always end up persuading me to get on them. Every time before I get on the first roller coaster, while I'm on the line, I tell myself, 
you do not have to do this. Just walk off the line right now, and you won't have to do this. My friends keep persuading me and keep persuading me until I'm finally locked in my seat about to start the terrifying experience. Even when I'm in my seat at the bottom of the roller coaster, I tell myself, you can still get up and leave. Just tell the conductor to stop the ride and let you off. I keep thinking about getting off, but I don't. As, as I slowly ascend to the middle, then the top, my mind goes blank. I tell myself there's absolutely no turning back now and that I just should brace myself for the ride. During the first drop, my heart is always in my throat. My adrenaline's always pumping. But after that, it's a cakewalk. I'm no longer scared. And believe it or not, <laughs> the roller coaster actually begins to become fun. In my opinion, you could totally relate this to what Sun Tzu is talking about. Put your men in a position where retreat is not an option, and they'll fight with everything they've got. If any of you have a story similar to this, I definitely want to hear it and relate it to the story if you can. You see this many times repeated throughout history. For example, when Julius Caesar fought Pompey, and also in the Battle of Stalingrad, when Joseph Stalin said, shoot all deserting troopers, soldiers started fighting with all their might because they had two choices now, either die for your country or die a coward. I don't know what you guys would choose, but I would definitely choose dying for my country. After carefully thinking everything out, Cyrus decided to take his people to Pastargai, a city located on top of a hill. Here they would not have the option to run. Here they had two choices, victory or death. I'll never forget that day 13 years ago when I visited the ruins of the city with my father, when I visited Cyrus's tomb. To know that on the same soil I was standing, 50,000 of my ancestors fought for their existence against an outnumbered foe. Also knowing I would not even be standing there if it was not for them. When you're on a regular battlefield, you have so many choices. Fight your hardest, fight just enough to make it out alive, run, avoid danger, or maybe even hide. When there's no exit, you have two choices. Fight your absolute hardest or die. When you pit the fight-or-die soldier against the conquering soldier, you better bet I'm putting my money on the former. And that's exactly the type of battle that was about to take place at Pastargai. After fighting them in two separate battles with heavy casualties, Astyages came to realize that the Persians were a much larger threat than he imagined. This is where the turning point would take place. Astyages realized that he'd let the Persians slide one too many times. They as a people, with Cyrus as their leader, were becoming too big of a threat. Would the prophecy become true? Would the son of his daughter grow up to take his kingdom? No more risks could be taken anymore. Astyages made his final decision. He was now going to attack the bees at their hive. He had planned to wipe the Persians off the face of the earth. Cyrus summoned every fighting man to his side. Men were called from the countryside. Farming tools were turned into weapons. Wagons converted into chariots. Iron from doors, wheels, temples, all melted down and turned into swords and shields. King Asiyaj would fall Cyrus to the ancient city of Pastargai, the city where the legend says the first Persian came into existence. This is where it would take place. The deciding battle. It's here it would take place. The final battle between the Medeans and Persians. If the Medeans won, it would mean one less enemy to deal with. 
and the continuation of the oppressive Median Empire. If the Persians lost, it would mean the entire annihilation of their race. Everything was on the line here, and Cyrus could not afford to lose. What will happen? What will be the outcome of this battle? What will be the fate of Persia? Tune in next time to find out on the Persian History Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening today. Please, please, please make sure to give me suggestions, ask questions, and start discussions in the Persian History Podcast Facebook page or by emailing me at persianhistorypodcast at gmail.com. By the way, the discussions in the Facebook page do not have to solely be about Persian history. They can be about anything history-related, like military history, comparative history, or anything you want. Thank you once again for listening. Goodbye, and khudafis, danish mandoye azizam.